Attention, teachers! We're on strike! professional you were Mish, but whatever all right well f uh for lack of anything better to do or lack of any uh more subtle way to start this hello ladies and gentlemen and thank you for tuning in once again to giving the mic to the wrong person i am your omnipresent host jeremy here with another collection of old friends and new here in our scenic basement studio apartment studios in surprisingly sunny and a bit too warm for may portland oregon here, uh, talking, uh, let's see, we got a uh, new guest to join you and, uh, also, uh, and some old friends to help, uh, help us along the way. Let's see, um, I think the subject of today is on teacher strikes, which is <laughs> unsurprisingly very in the news and will not be very in the news for quite a while. At least as long as we have, as long, I guess as long as uh, we have anything to say about it. Um, Let's see, uh, new guest, would you please introduce yourself to our viewing audience? Yeah. Hey, all. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Yeah, so my name is Eric Blanc. I was a teacher in the Bay Area for eight years. I've been a public education organizer and a socialist for a long time. And uh, for the last year and a half, I've been traveling around covering the strikes as a journalist for Jacobin and the Nation. And I just wrote a book called Red State Revolt about the strikes. Excellent. And joining a returning, uh, returning champion, would you please introduce yourself to the viewing audience? Sure. My name is Candy Luis Herrera. I am a staffer for the Washington Education Association and a member of Portland DSA. Excellent. And so uh, since, Eric, you have been doing on your... I don't want to say barnstorming tour, but definitely... Uh, t uh, you could say that. It would sound really cool if you did say it. <laughs> barnstorming tour. It? Yeah. The, the, so many fucking barns. Yeah. Endless barns. Uh, barnstorming tour slash pod book tour. They really need to, we really do need a name for like what, uh, or at least to, uh, like what, uh, a name for, you know, some sort of like German, um, mat, you know, mashup of like a, a podcast book tour. Cause you can, you know, just with a, with a mic and a, and a Skype application, you can go on like what, 20 different shows in a day as opposed to like hitting bookstores everywhere. Anyway, so we're not, the, we're not exactly the most formal of conversations here. Right. Uh, talking. Uh, so we wanted to, you. You're in town here, and we're recording this in very. I guess this is very early May. This will probably air in a couple of weeks. To uh, you know, kind of give a talk about your book and the and the and what you've been. Uh, you know, kind of teacher action across the nation. Could you? Uh, I guess to, uh, for lack of a better way, uh, a more subtle way to describe it. Could you uh, pitch your book, or give the uh, give us your book spiel? <laughs> the book spiel. I mean, the the book is a account really of a pretty remarkable moment we're living in mm. as far as, you know, not just teachers, but working people. Uh, our side has been losing for 40 years. We've been getting crushed basically by capital. And so it's a big deal. It's like a really fucking big deal that there's a strike wave, uh, the first strike wave in at least 40 years. And so the book is trying to make sense of that. It's trying to uh, account for that. And in large part, it's told through the story of the rank-and-file teachers that uh, participated in the strike and that um, led it forward. And you know, I, I have an angle on that because I have no pretense of being a neutral observer. I was uh, really deeply embedded with these organizers in, in all of the states where the uh, strikes happened in 2018 
which is uh, statewide strikes, which is to say West Virginia, Arizona, and Oklahoma. And that's really the bulk of what the book is about. And I went there um, both to write about it, but honestly also as an organizer, and I helped organize National Solidarity for the Strikers. And so because of that, I was basically able to uh, get the inside scoop and really be sort of welcomed into some of the inside organizing. And I think the story of the strike then uh, is captured in the book and hopefully is really a, a inspiring uh, story for other people across the country who are looking to fight back, either if they're educators or basically if they're just workers anywhere. It, right. it's, a, it's a tale of how you can do it, too. That's awesome. What, uh, what, I guess what kind of led you to wanting to, to do this in a book form? Or did it just seem natural that this is the way to go? That's a good question. Well, I think part of it is that writing it as a book allows one or allowed me to try to cohere some of the broader lessons. Because when you're writing things about just a given strike, it can seem particular mm-hmm. to, you know, maybe this was a particularity of West Virginia. And so, for instance, and so taking a step back and trying to synthesize, you know, what the hell is going on means that you're able to draw out some of the lessons, the patterns, some of the processes that otherwise, if you're just focused on a case-by-case account, wouldn't be as prevalent. And then, to be honest, part of it is also, I think, writing a book is it's a way to legitimize and project what a big deal this is uh, and to, you know, say some of the stuff that had been written about, or at least what I had been writing about in journalism form, but to try to get it to a broader audience and to use it to speak to union folks and socialists across the country. And so, so far, so good. Great. Candy? Yeah, I was curious. What were the differences that you saw in the strikes? And then what were the similarities? Yeah. Um, yeah, in some ways, the the big difference is not covered directly in the book, which is to say that since 2018, there's been strikes popped off in uh, Los Angeles, in Oakland, in Denver, and, you know, quote-unquote blue states where the strikes are directly confronting mm-hmm. Democratic parties uh, in which some of the strikes are illegal, unlike the red state strikes in which they were all illegal. So maybe the big story there as far as the difference is that the dynamic in a place like West Virginia, Arizona, or Oklahoma is much more um, semi-spontaneous, for lack of a better term, which is to say that the unions came on board eventually under pressure but the main impetus for organizing came from rank-and-file activists, socialists. Uh, Facebook pages played a really big role in all of these strikes. Whereas in a place like Los Angeles, uh, the dynamic looks pretty different, which is to say that four years ago, radicals won the leadership of their union. They were pre- mm-hmm. preparing for their strike for a long time. I actually think, broadly speaking, the Los Angeles model, if you can do that, is uh, even a higher form of action because they're able to build the sort of organizational infrastructure and power that is harder to sustain in a place uh, like West Virginia or Oklahoma or Arizona because they don't have collective bargaining. Their unions uh, just don't have the infrastructure right now to kind of sustain the power in a way that Los Angeles has done. So I think that one of the paradoxes of the strikes is that they started and have been able to spread most in red states where just the infrastructure of what normally prevents labor militancy is weaker. So you don't have the type of strong bureaucracies, you don't have the types of uh, strong democratic parties in power that normally co-opt and absorb labor energy. Um, But the flip side is it's also harder after these actions uh, pop off to sustain the momentum and the organization. So it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, I think, as far as which of these two type of models is going to be able to 
be a better um, long-term solution for our side. Yeah, it's, it's kind of thing of like it's some point for either you know ongoing fights and also ones going forward of it's almost kind of a thing like like you need a you need either an addendum or uh, how how late does the book go? Yeah, so the book goes uh, really it covers the main strikes in 2018, which is to say the big ones were West Virginia, then Oklahoma, then Arizona. So the book is the book is focused on the red states, but I was already pretty conscious and uh, I got lucky in the sense that I argued that it was very unlikely that these strikes were going to stay confined to red states. So it's tricky making a prediction that can quickly be proven wrong or right. So uh, this one was proved correct, uh, which is to say that the book also tries to actually make a strong case that contrary to the narrative of like red state uh, revolt, which is the way the media talked about it, the underlying issues that pushed these workers to strike aren't uh, limited to places where the Republicans are dominant. Um, and it's not really, it wasn't ever really just about low pay, which is the real superficial account. Mm-hmm. Um, the underlying dynamic is that across the country, there's been a bipartisan uh, offensive against public education and the strikes in red states and blue are really a reflection of a pushback across the board against that. So the, I think that is in some ways the big story. Well, the, in West Virginia, Arizona, and Oklahoma, it just seemed like the starvation came from the state, the state level of um, state level funding, you know. Um, whereas, like in Oakland and uh, in Washington, at least the money was there. I mean, in Washington, teachers had just won, or educa- education union had just won um, a very big lawsuit that basically forced the the state to cough up um, the. Uh, allocation for education and so it was a matter of of kind of wrenching it from the hands of management so the way i see it at least for public employees is that it's a two-step process the first step is is getting the state to cough it up and then when it's finally allocated um to something like a school district then it's having to then fight management in order to make sure that um through the collective bargaining process that those that those monies are actually um uh, are actually given over in salary. And so in Oakland, it was, I mean, they had like a 30%, something like that fund balance uh, reserves. You know what I mean? So it's like they had the money. It was just a matter of getting it. Whereas my understanding of West Virginia, of the red strikes is that they just didn't, like they just weren't getting the money from the state, which was a lot of it was my experience in Florida. Sometimes we'd go to bargain and there was, they really, really didn't have the money. Yeah, that's a really tricky question because part of the difficulty is knowing when they actually do have the money or not. Um, and so in all of the states uh, that have had strikes, and including uh, blue states and red states, uh, the strikes have this miraculous, magical way of making the politicians find more money. Mm-hmm. And so it's true to a certain extent that the um, financial conditions are different, but it was very hard to say because in a place like West Virginia, the money in some ways, the money's there everywhere, which is to say that in every single one of the states of the United States, the priorities of the legislature have just made it so that because of tax cuts and corporate giveaways, there mm-hmm. isn't these funds. And so if there's political will, uh, then it's possible to meet the demands of workers. And that's sort of been the underlying intuition of the strikes. That being said, it becomes harder when there is a perception and or some reality of a budget crunch. Um, but I think you know, one of the interesting things that happened in a place like Arizona 
in which the legislature and the governor said there's literally no more money than for a one percent raise. They just we would love to give you what you need. Mm-hmm. We you know we love teachers. We love education. You know, bless your hearts. We uh, love it, folks, don't we? We love it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so this is you know the the Republicans clearly were on the side of all people, including teachers. Uh, but they just you know there just wasn't enough money to go around. And then after five days of striking in Arizona, lo and behold. Oh, it turns out there is enough money for a twenty percent raise. Right. So, so it's very tricky to know. You know, they find the money uh, in some way or another. Well, it's a distinction between getting it at the district level versus the state level. Yeah, they could always raise ta- taxes, right? They could also they could always pass capital gains. Like the money, like the the possibility of getting it is always there at the state level. But at the local level, like if you're working with a poor district that has mostly renters, you know, which are often like um, at least in Florida, it's where uh, um, where black and brown people are concentrated, sometimes the money literally isn't there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that's right, and it's one of the reasons why the red state strikes, in some ways, were m- more powerful. Is that insofar as the, they were illegal, they were able to break out of um, this, you know, legal confine in which is really set up for us to lose in some ways. Because as you mentioned, yeah, some local districts don't on their own have the money or the legal leverage, and so the part of the power of these strikes was that they broke the law and mm-hmm. basically went straight to the state in a way that is harder in a place where there's some sort of collective bargaining in which, you know, you, there's some parameters to fight, but as you mentioned, the resources aren't necessarily there. So it raises the question of, like, how do you win in a place like California? How do you win in a place like um, uh, even Washington, you know, where I guess the funds are there, but when there's more of a difficulty in uniting a statewide movement that that is a challenge and i think like i was just in texas in which the real challenge there was well how do you get all of these local districts who are fighting small fights in their district to try to come up with building a statewide movement and it's it's actually quite difficult in a big state or in a state in which um it's not so obvious how you get everyone to the capital uh for a big action or for a big walkout yeah especially a state where it takes what 12 hours to drive across. Yeah, it makes it, it's a, you know, it's a real factor. Um, a lot of the, especially in the coverage of like the, like, like the, because like the, the, the word, the word wave is used a lot, but I'm wondering, cause I think, but I, I think that doesn't, um, I think, yeah, it's definitely a wave, but I think it, it kind of, um, skews the view of the history. Um, can, when we, we had an earlier, uh, episode, God, it was like, like three months ago, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like, it was, it was, um, uh, some time ago about um i think it was right around the time of the la of the la teacher strike all right like either you know coterminous or right at it and but one of the in one of our members who actually wasn't able to make it here today uh one of our guests had been was started teaching in wisconsin and i want to know if you could uh talk a little bit about how the how the teacher strikes in wisconsin and chicago mm. kind of reverberated through you know, so that they, so that it kind of had, you know, set things up to happen five years later. Yeah, that's a good question. It's certainly not the case that, like, West Virginia started something completely out of the blue. Th- there is a qualitative difference uh, if you look at just the sheer number of workers on strike. 2018 was the highest number of workers on strike since 1986. You had almost 400,000 uh, striking teachers. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, like, it's a really big deal. Uh, and there wasn't anything equivalent to that in the years prior. But that being said, uh, as you mentioned, yeah, the Chicago teacher strike in particular in 2012 was uh, and remains an important um, 
sort of lesson and model for radical teachers across the country. And it definitely played a role in all of these uh, strikes. To, to give one example, in West Virginia, a lot of people don't realize that the first organizing that eventually culminated in the strike was begun by two uh, DSA members who were teachers in Charleston, Jay O'Neill and Emily Comer, and they did a study group of Jane McAlevey's book, No Shortcuts, one of the chapters of which, yeah, great book. No, yeah, it's uh, over, there on the, uh, over there on the shelf. Yeah, and so the one of the chapters in that is about the sh- lessons of the Chicago teacher strike of 2012, and Jane really lays out some of these big lessons. And so the organizers who did West Virginia were very consciously trying to replicate some of the lessons that they saw in the Chicago teacher strike as far as having a union that fights not just for its own members, but that consciously... Uh, fights for really working people as a whole. It expands. Yeah, and the continuity then was pretty clear. In some ways, it was even clearer in um, Arizona, where one of the key leaders of the walkout was a rank-and-file uh, member of CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union, in 2012, who moved to Arizona a few years after, and so had participated in the Chicago strike, and then in turn became a leader of Arizona, in large part because she was had been able to absorb the experience and lessons from Chicago and then transformed those into Arizona and was very conscious about that. It was just like, this is what we saw work. This is how we're going to do it here. Um, so I think that, yeah, the continuity of struggle um, is very real. That being said, this is just way bigger and broader than anything before. Mm-hmm. Almost like an overture, or just kind of like the preliminary, the preliminary, the preliminary uh, events or God, I just, um, I am, I'm kicking myself for thinking of this reference, but it's almost like the, uh, the how the very first Game of Thrones book sets up everything else. <laughs> God, I hate myself. I don't even watch the fucking show anymore, and it's still, yeah, it's still there. I've only seen one episode. Yeah. So, so I'm literally. just going to assume you're right. I'm, I'm nodding my head and I'm saying <laughs> this is correct, sir. It, no, it was, it, it was fun for a couple of years. And after a while, it's like, wow, this is, it's kind of like, you know, this is how HBO, um, makes uh makes their you know sex and violence you know kind of as a form of prestige tv you know acceptable to middle class blogger types do you have one no I don't. oh no no, no i, mean, I, no, I, I just can't o- i can't get over your flawless analogy i'm sorry yeah, we we're gonna take a beat. the one episode i ever saw was actually <laughs> in west virginia just two weeks ago i i uh was on the book tour and uh, it was sort of idyllic. It was springtime. We talked all this lovely, uh, you know, strike talk, and we had a barbecue, and you know, in the sun. And then Jay and Emily, who are the, these main organizers, I was just talking about, actually insisted that uh, we watch the big battle scene, you know, that, that happened two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And so I watched it with them, and I couldn't really understand what was going on. So again, I will just assume what you said was right. <laughs> But there is actually a cosmic uh, connection then between the West Virginia strike and Game of Thrones that you weren't aware of. So now wow. you know. What do you know? It's a, the, the things you find out through just random tossed off dumb jokes and associations. <laughs> One of the um, – because I think there's – because I'm terrible uh, – pardon me. While I think a lot I'm terrible at, uh, at transitioning questions, but it's kind of a thing – but – Especially the like uh, between say uh, Chicago and I think Chicago especially is a good example, but of like you know these but these strikes uh, the strikes as an example of just showing how kind of the popular God almost like 
two decade now old, you know, kind of like established media view of certain states as like one color or another, just because that's how, you know, it's some, you know, just because due to a quirk of how we set, you know, both how we set up the fucking electoral college and how TV networks tend to illustrate that it's kind of, it becomes, it's become like total, you know, almost like some sort of weird you know, almost like colonial U.S. idea of like these totalizing views of a, of a people in a state are all, you know, mm-hmm. homogeneous enough that can be represented by, right. you know, and so that, you know, oh, yeah, red state America. It's like, dude, what do you consider Florida? I mean, it's like, I mean, yeah. that's kind of thing. And I'm wondering if if you could mention like the because um, there's there's two questions that I have about this. One is how to kind of the fact that it's that you had this many people and this many, you know, this many people, especially well, everywhere, like on the ground, who are really you know, ready to fucking fight, even though the particular, you know, the the presidential voting of the particular state has its own histories, but also, um, I guess it's kind of like how that kind of sh- gives the lie to kind of like really like clueless, like establishment media people talking about, you know, oh, what those people are actually like. Yeah, I think that's a big uh, part of the strikes, which is to say that. The myth of red state, blue state was sort of imploded um, in a really lovely way because, yeah, as you mentioned, the dominant discourse has it that everything between the coasts and maybe pockets of the Midwest are a bunch of, you know, uh, Bible thumping idiots. Yeah, Trump voters. Trump voters. And, you know, there's, there's aspects of that, which is true. But the reality is, you know, Trump, for instance, won every single county in West Virginia in 2016. Bernie Sanders also won every single county in West Virginia in 2016. So which is to say that people are really sick of the political center and of the Democrats and Republicans and are looking for an alternative. And the difficulty in one of the just, you know, tragedies of U.S. politics is that for the most part, there is no alternative on offer. So you get a lot of weird symptoms uh, and weird political processes. But the reality is, I think that the main division remains... uh, you know, not left or right, but up and down, which is to say social class, uh, is very significant in every state. And the strikes show that. You had Trump voters together with people who didn't vote, together with people who voted for Hillary, which is hardly like a, you know, expression of deep class consciousness as such, uh, uniting around their common interests and fighting against capital, which is the force that starved these states and in turn made it so that there wasn't funding for educators and students. So there was direct confrontation um, with uh, between working people and their class enemies, our class enemies, in places that you wouldn't have expected at all. If you had asked somebody a year before whether it's going to be a mass strike statewide in a place like Oklahoma or Arizona, everyone would have laughed. It would have been totally inconceivable because the perception of what people's politics are is just so warped by an extremely superficial account of how people happen to vote, you know, one minute uh, a year or at at most in presidential or, or local four, elections. Maybe two to four, yeah, if that. Yeah, so... I was just going to ask, if you, were, if you were to ask those people, are you in a fight against capital? Do you think that they would say yes, or do, they th- do you think that they would say, no, we believe that the school should be better funded? Oh, it's certainly the case that for the vast majority of teachers, the conscious uh, nature of the struggle was, we just need better schools. But the dynamic of the struggle itself made it such that to fund the schools, it immediately posed the question of, well, where are you going to get the money? So in West Virginia, just like in Oklahoma or Arizona, the question is like, well, how are you going to fund the schools? 
the most obvious answer is reverse the tax cuts to the big energy corporations that have bled dry the state for all these years. And so then in turn, you know, people don't have to be socialists. They don't have to be consciously fighting against capitalism to engage in class struggle and into and engage in a fight against those corporations. And that's actually what happened. You know, you had a lot of signs uh, calling to tax our gas. Um, and it, it didn't necessarily translate in the short term into like a crystallized political consciousness. But, you know, it's not accidental that socialists led strikes in all of these states, with partial exception of Oklahoma. And there was tremendous red baiting against the strike leaders because of that. But these same teachers, many of whom voted for Trump or Republican voters, sided with their socialist rank and file leaders and not with the politicians that were calling them out. So there is a sort of a beginning uh, convergence between political radicalism and the rebirth of socialism uh, and this new labor movement, which is bringing together a really wide uh, range of people. So I'm asking um, because I see that I see a large part of my job is, is bridging the divide between union consciousness and, and class political consciousness. And so I think there are the reason why I ask that is because there are limitations to I like phrase it this way. I, I, I'm not entirely convinced that striking is a revolutionary act, to be honest with you, because if you ask the majority of people who do go on strike, it's something that seems, you know, very common sense. Like, yeah, we all believe that that education should be funded and that kids should go to quality schools. I don't think that that's a particularly revolutionary platform, to be honest with you. Um you know, because the right to public education has been enshrined, even for even for formerly undocumented people like me. Um, I think it was 1982. Um, there was a there was a. Scottish challenge. There was a, a, a case uh, that determined that um, undocumented children do have a right to, to public education. And so my whole point is that when people go on strike, because the majority of people do so, um, they they take that action based on a political consciousness that is not terribly that's not ter- it's not socialist. Right. It's just I feel like my kid should go to a good school. You know, that 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 you see a limitation in that. And so the problem for us as organizers is how to as as transformative as a strike can be for union consciousness. How do you keep that going in such a way where you actually build class consciousness? And that's the hard part. Like I always argue the strike going through a strike. That's actually easy now that I've done it. um, And the like that's just basic organizing, to be honest with you, Um, because I had all of these conceptions about what a strike meant for workers I taught labor history in grad school. Like I, 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 you know, I'm, I, 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 um, I'm a labor history enthusiast, all the things, right. Um, I've been a labor activist for years and then you actually do it and you're like, Oh, for one thing I didn't have, like we didn't have nearly as much leverage as we thought when we did go on strike. And then the much bigger question was how do we keep this going? And that is the hard part. That is far more difficult than making sure that you have enough trainings for your picket captains. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. The um, the context, it was different in the red states insofar as the strikes were illegal. And so it required a much greater willingness to challenge the um, politicians directly because it wasn't as if there was an institutional framework in which it was relatively easy to strike. And so... Okay, I'm sorry, just for clarification, by legal, you mean it says explicitly in state law that public employees are not allowed to strike? Is that what you mean? 
Yeah. So in yeah, in every single one of these states, yeah, it's on the books. And so you actually had the attorney general and um and the legislature openly threaten people with losing their jobs or being fined. And so yeah, it was people were terrified for uh, understandable reasons. And so so that required a level of willingness to break outside of the mold of uh, maybe ordinary politics. There was a level of just breach of the routine that I think was uh, different than in a place like Washington in which there was somehow more of a, uh, maybe the risks entailed were not as high. And so the level of radicalization and empowerment, I think, did uh, look probably different because of just the requirement for um, breaking with a lot of preconceived notions about authority and about um, empowerment. It wasn't as if the unions were uh, sort of creating a structure for workers to do these strikes either. For them to happen, it required so many people to become um, organizers at their school sites uh, not in a training type way, but in a sort of ad hoc, extremely uh, uh, sort of volcanic type of way. And that's the, I think what you said though is co- totally right, which is the main difficulty is how do you sustain that afterwards? Um, there's certainly nothing automatic about it. It's not as if workers go on strike and they're all radicals and socialists. I think at most you can say that it lends people uh, to be more open to these type of politics but that requires, you know, conscious efforts by organizers to win people uh, to a long-term vision. And it's definitely not automatic. But a lot of people did get politicized. A lot of people stopped voting Republican and started voting Democrat, which is not some sort of revolutionary act, but was a reflection <laughs> of, but was a reflection of a political experience. Um, and I think some of those people uh, also became socialists in the process. One thing um, in terms of like keeping, you know, having the keeping the movement going, the, the inertia up. Something I remember, because uh, Megan Day has written about this in, I can't remember if it was if it, either East Bay or San Fran, but about like one of the, well, I think, yeah, I think it was Oakland because of um, the campaign of, was it Giovanna Beckles? Yeah, Giovanna Beckles. Giovanna Beckles, yes, about how, because, it, you know, they, they fired up for that. That one, that one, you know, she, you know, learned a lot, but, she, you know, she didn't win her campaign, but wasn't the thing, they, they immediately just turned around, you know, kind of flipped a couple of switches and then immediately um, went, you know, just dived headlong into setting up for the for the Oakland teachers organizing there, too. Did they not? So what I, what I'm, so I guess my question is, is 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 the um, the dreaded um, the, the dreaded the dreaded is there a place for like, you know, um, electoralism? you know, ew, as a way to kind of like help at least, you know, keep some of these struggles going in terms of like, um, like as a, as a, as a venue for folks working on this stuff together. Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually a very important point, which is to say the first thing is that some of the strike leaders themselves first got organized together through electoral projects, which is to say particularly the Bernie Sanders campaign. So you know, there's this back and forth between electoral politics and something like social movements or strikes that's very important. And I don't really think uh, if you're serious about building power, you can afford to just do one, uh, even if you want to, because just to be real, you can't strike all the time. Uh, It's not feasible uh, for just exhaustion levels or for the different workplaces that were involved. And it's not going to fly. Yeah, especially when it rains, it sucks. Well, you know, they, they they struck in the rain in L.A., so they, they, you, you can make it happen. But, the you know, if, if, if you're a teacher, 
you you want to teach your students. You, you don't want to be on strike all the time. And same with students and parents. Maybe students don't care as much, to be honest. I, I definitely had some talking uh, anecdotally with students after the strike. And they were all very happy to, like, be back and, you know, gave hugs to their their teachers but I asked them well, like, what was it really like and some were like well, it was pretty sweet got to play a lot of video games yeah, so you know uh, but at least for parents and teachers you can't strike all the time and then that raises the question of building power in the interim and I think a big part of that is uh, electoral politics um, the problem isn't electoral politics as such it's the problem is that most of what has gone with her electoral politics for decades if not more in the United States has been basically our side and our union's begging the Democratic Party to help us out, and it's just completely ineffective. And so what's exciting about, I think, the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, both in 2016 and then today, and then more generally like insurgent socialists like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or others across the country, is that it shows a different way of engaging in electoral politics in which you're able to uh, raise people's expectations, you're able to build a political infrastructure, and you're able to therefore like sustain some of this momentum that's generated through strikes into a political challenge. And I think that ultimately, as you were mentioning earlier, I, strikes on their own uh, are very important for generating momentum and consciousness, but I don't think they're sufficient to create the kind of like structural political change uh, that we need. The um, In terms of building power and building movements... We don't, I don't know if we can necessarily, I guess, let's just say, not necessarily we have to get with that, uh, mention just the DSA in particular, but how can, um, I was going to say, you know, leftist organizations like DSA, DSA and ISO, except one of those doesn't exist anymore. Um, how can, um, how can large, uh, large, um, you know, explicitly leftist org organizations, um, you know, how could and how should they support and encourage you know, kind of like act, you know, active on the ground actions or whatnot to kind of like, or you know, what's like, what, what should be the connection point, or what should be the support point, or even, you know, is it kind of a, you know, the the how should these things interact in terms of like not even just supporting pickets, but also like maybe we should probably, you know, let's talk, let's talk to folks with some basic political ed political education there, you know, it's like okay, you know, here, hey folks, this is you know, this is who Fred Hampton was, and you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, there's, there's a question in there somewhere. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways to support. I think our goal as socialists is also uh, to go beyond just supporting and, and trying to figure out actually how we reconnect the labor movement with the socialist movement as such. And so a big part of that is us as socialists organizing at our workplaces and uh, if we're not already organizing in, if we're not working in places that it makes sense strategically to try to organize getting a job in a place that does. And so I think one of the exciting things about these strikes is that clearly the role of even a small group of radicals has been demonstrated, particularly in a place where um, there was more of a political vacuum. I don't think that you're just going to have two socialists every time and all of a sudden lead a mass strike. It'd be ridiculous to think that. But uh, I'd be nice. Yeah. The, the reality is, though, that you did have small groups of radicals, and this has historically been the case. A lot of the major strikes in the 1930s and, and after were, you know, you had really dedicated uh, socialists and other forms of radicals playing a leadership role. But in order to do that, you need to be a serious um, activist at your workplace. I don't think you can do that as effectively as staff. I, I think it's important to have good staff and, you know, there's a role for that. But it's harder uh, to change the politics and culture of a union 
uh, when you're getting paid by that organization. Um, you know, you don't have the same leverage that you potentially do as a rank and file worker. So I think one of the exciting things within DSA generally is, um, you know, there's a prioritization that hasn't existed uh, for a long time of getting, you know, rank and file jobs as teachers, as nurses, um, in other places where there's labor organizing happening and to try to transform our unions into the fighting instruments we need and then using that in turn to be able to start organizing the unorganized more. Excellent. Kenny? Uh, gosh, I just said a lot. Um, no, I'm toss it over to you. What um the second half of the question that I wanted to that I wanted to mention the the kind of the not an effectiveness I guess the inaccuracy of the blue state red state thing is and this is also earlier I think hell this is you know here's your if you're not already working on already here's your uh, here's your second half of a of a book pitch of using these kind of um not just the red not just um it's like not only you know red state strikes breaking up the you know shattering the view the you know kind of like the popular viewpoint of these people but also the accompanying using the uh using the blue state strikes as a way to kind of i guess um to kind of like nothing else like i mean engage the much more kind of like um let's just say uh Showing like a lot of the well-meaning but very clueless hardcore like hashtag resistance types that like yeah sometimes you do have to fight you know it's like sometimes you do have to fight uh, it's like the you know the people who label themselves Democrats are the ones standing in your way um, and there was a guy named you know Ram fucking Emanuel who is a uh, you know kind of emblematic of this kind of a thing and I'm wondering if. If, you know, if or how there is effectiveness in using in, you know, kind of like using these teacher strikes to show it's like, yeah, it's the, uh, um, you know, there's, you know, there, there is a, you know, for for what bits of the Democratic Party can be redeemed or even used as a vessel. It's kind of like, you know, show, using these strikes, especially in like blue states of like saying like, yeah, this is, you know, there are uh, there are more enemies out there than just those who, uh, you know, who label themselves GOP. Yeah, it's a huge part of the story. I mean, I think that's why the Los Angeles strike was so important in particular, because it was a direct confrontation with the Democratic Party establishment in L.A. and really more broadly. The Democrats have been at least as responsible, in some ways even more responsible, for the privatization wave. Uh, there was more charters founded under Obama than any other uh, administration, including the Trump administration. Charter schools is the is the... I don't know, not, not chink in the army, but it's like the fry, it's like the one, it's like the, it's the, it's the touch point. Yeah, it's the, mm -hmm. it's the fulcrum. It's the, it's the one point. It's the yeah. So the Democrats really um, were the most responsible for pushing this, and the fact that now you have strikes in California, in Washington, walkout in Oregon, it it makes a big difference for how uh, the public understands what is going on, and it's. Yeah, definitely not the case that this is a specific Republican um, policy. And it also raises a more interesting question strategically, which is to say, you know, what what will it take for our unions and for the labor movement to stop being dependent on the Democratic Party, right? Because mm -hmm. in the red states, it wasn't raised to the same extent because you could go on strike. And if the Republicans were in charge, the Democrats were kind of a side note. It didn't really matter as much what your relationship to them was. But if you're going to have strikes in a place like Oregon, if you're going to have strikes in a place like California, that means confronting the Democrats. And there's been a reticence. And one of the reasons why there's fewer strikes still in blue states compared to the red states is that there's still a deep reticence of union leaders to confront uh, the Democrats and to break from this hope that if only they have some connections personally or some sort of backroom deal, 
that they're going to be able to save their schools. And it's just so clearly not worked that I think uh, it's really necessary to, to raise the question of, yeah, like, for fuck's sake, stop with this strategy that's clearly a dead end. You know, if I could mention something, because again, I'm, I moved to the Pacific Northwest by way of um, by way of Florida. And so one of the things, one of the first things that I noticed here was that um, it is the is that white people in the north uh, really look down on white people in the south. And I didn't I didn't realize that until I came here. Whereas, you know, my perspective as a formerly undocumented immigrant is that, you know, y'all are the same white folks to me. You know, that's the same. The, the racism is a different type here. Um, but uh, at least with Southerners, you're honest. And it's it goes back to Jeremy's point about perceptions and stuff like that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm talking specifically about race, but on the kind of on the other end, you're 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 basically saying that from the perspective of labor, there's far more in common um, with white people in the, you know, the blue versus red, the north versus south, um, then there are differences. Now, I experienced it differently again, but the point is still the same. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reality was, in some ways, the strikes that have had to put the fight against racial oppression, most central have been in blue states, not red states. Uh, that's, that's not because they weren't raised in Arizona, for instance, it was very important that the organizers were very consciously uh, building a multiracial movement. It was significant in a place like Arizona, where there's a long history of uh, sort of uh, <laughs> racist white supremacy, that the Red for Ed signs that were printed and plastered across the country, uh, across the state, were all bilingual. Um, you know, and then you had a lot of speakers um, promoting the demands in Spanish. And, you know, so there was a very co conscious effort. But in... Los Angeles and Oakland, the main way that the charters and privatization lobby is, has sort of pushed their narrative is that it's helping poor kids of color. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the unions had to, by necessity, raise uh, the question of how actually you could win racial justice in a significant way. How can you actually uh, improve education for working class communities of color? And the the proof was that they were able to really articulate a much better version of racial justice, which wasn't one dependent on getting billions of dollars from rich people, but was based on solidarity and collective struggle. Um, and yeah, in that sense, it's almost the exact opposite that it was precisely where you might least expect it, that the question of racial justice had to be even more central. But yeah. And it's kind of, a, and it's a point that we actually, we talked about this with, uh, um, other, uh, I guess you could call him like uh, ex-Southerner Derek Varn, uh, a couple like a month or so ago about, in terms of like uh, you know Northern white folks looking down on Southern white folks because it's like especially like you know bi-coastal elite elite types like the ones who kind of like run who staff newsrooms and send reporters out on like you know Trump safaris. It's kind of a thing <laughs> where they can, um, it's like to them like they can't possibly reconcile the concepts of say Georgia and Atlanta. Or, um, or Mississippi and Jackson yeah. or, you know, Florida, you know, it's like, it's like Florida man, but it's, a, but it's like, I don't know, you know, Florida is, you know, Orlando, Gainesville, Miami, like, you know, they're, you know, Jacksonville. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of a thing of how do you, you know, how can you, how can these concepts possibly, you know, even interact with each other? Yeah. Was, I mean, people, they were perplexed when the strikes popped off. They're like, how could this happen in Trump country? Because there's the, the assumption, as you sort of mentioned, is that like, white people 
who vote Republican are so much stupider than white people that vote for the Democrats, right? As if this mm -hmm. was like really, you know, just beyond the pale. Um, and, you know, when you had workers go on strike, yeah, that was the first question. It was really interesting. When, when I was in West Virginia, one of the reasons I was able to sort of make friends with some of the organizers quickly is that I didn't ask that question. Because that, that's the first question. Anytime some of the New York Times, anybody came, they're just like, how is this possible in Trump country? And what? They're like, and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not like the starting point and end point for anybody's politics here. Uh, it doesn't really like define people. So, yeah, there's a level of contempt uh, for, I think, working class people generally that gets refracted in different ways. And it gets refracted against uh, working class people of color and it gets refracted against working class white people. Um, and part of the exciting thing about the strikes is that it's in turn showing uh, a totally different type of politics and is, uh, you know, showing the limitations of liberalism in its various forms. And there's something universal about people not wanting to get screwed out of their wages. Yeah. I don't think it matters how you vote. Yeah, funny how that works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's kind of the. Uh, on that note, have you, in terms of like, I guess you know, uh, coverage from any sort of. I don't. I I never use the term mainstream. I use the term establishment. Uh, is there anybody? Were there any reporters or any people from establishment outlets who seemed, you know, anything from like you know cable networks to to print who seemed to at least kind of fucking get it? Well, you know, the. The, the the coverage could have been a lot worse. I, I was actually surprised. It could have been a lot worse, which is to say that most of the time when you're doing labor organizing, you just get decimated. And partly because it was teachers, and partly, to be honest, because it was in red states, some of the, like, establishment media saw this, oh, this is this is going to be helpful for getting Democrats elected. So the, the, the coverage was superficial. It, it tended to not really go beyond talking about, you know, pay demands and... It didn't really go into any of these types of dynamics in a much deeper way, and the big lessons were obscured. But for the most part, the establishment media, uh, at least at first, was favorable-ish, uh, which is, I think, sign of the times that these strikes were so popular. You know, you're talking every poll has it, the strikes and the teachers well over 75, 80%. So so the, the media reflected that to a certain extent. They didn't go, uh, at least on a national level, uh, attacking the teachers uh, on a statewide level where you had sort of more skin in the game from some of the local capital and you know these establishment outlets were linked to mm -hmm. um to the republicans there you saw a lot more op-eds things like oh the teachers are hurting students xyz um so you that type of attack was local as far as good coverage i mean not really there was nothing very sustained uh the new york times had a few decent pieces uh it really but the the interest in talking about labor as such has uh, been really cut. That's in some ways the big story, which is that people consider labor to be dead and mainstream or establishment media uh, stopped hiring labor reporters. And it'll be interesting to see now after the strikes whether that changes because it's seen potentially as labor is a thing again. Um, but they were scrambling. I mean, they they really didn't have the people on the ground to start making sense of it because just nobody has been following this type of thing for a very long time. I was um, uh, at a history conference and one of our local folks, Don McIntosh, who's been on the podcast before, he gave a presentation on just the local uh, organizing efforts of, of journalists. 
And what he says, and he had a whole long list of, of, of folks, of journalists who had just unionized, you know, the Onion. Um, well, I mean, they're not exactly hard-hitting news, but like... Uh, they're, getting, they're, they're getting angrier. They're getting, they are getting angrier. Um, uh, what's the one uh, that has a channel now and they do like... Vice. Vi- thank you. Vice. They just unionize uh, the Times Tech. Um, I'm trying to remember. He, he had a whole long list of... Gawker of, Media. Gawker Media, yeah, of just all the, the at least, it wouldn't be print journalism, just media journalists that, that had unionized. And so with it, his subtext of his talk was that, like, you know, maybe we'll get better labor coverage as a result. But the thing is, I think back, like, um, SAG, uh, Af- oh, I can never get it. SAG Afra. Af- Af- Astra, is there an S? No, I think it's SAG Aftra. Aftra. A-F-T-R-A. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's I'm dyslexic, so I really actually really struggle with all these acronyms. But anyway, they've been unionized for years, and it's actually a really strong union. I mean, they were the only ones. Um, Michael Hudson says that it's been the only union to successfully um, fight back against futures contracts in the film industry. And so they are um, they are very powerful. Yet, you know, where are all our amazing pro-union films? Hmm. You know, the ones that do get produced, half of them suck. You know, I'll be frank. And, um, you know, I don't I don't necessarily I don't see and even the Screenwriters Guild. I mean, they have a union, too. You know what I mean? And they 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 go on strike. And so I don't see the connection between a strongly unionized industry and that necessarily reflecting in in, in, in popular culture. So yeah. I'm suspect of Don's. <laughs> Particularly when it comes to labor, when labor is just one. It's, it's sort of a taboo uh, in some ways that other political issues are not. Um, in the United States. So, yeah, I think it'd be, it's going to require like a level of sustained action to force um, the issue back into the mainstream that is not going to happen just sort of by some level of uh, unionization within a given institution. I think you're basically right. Is it is it taboo or is it just fucking boring? Because I'll be honest, like a lot of the local stuff that I read by local reporters, not by like folks like Don or Trained, it's like, there's labor conflict and it'll get into like the nitty gritty of the contract as opposed to what union should be doing. And this is part, I'm not going to, I don't want to do the blame the victim, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that we should be doing versus framing, framing the situation in such a way that makes it relevant to working people. Um, and that, uh, you know, for instance, in education, framing it so that we're talking about students and we're talking about the community versus, you know, an interpretation of a bill that passed or something like that. Yeah, well, totally. Well, so insofar as unions weren't doing that much, it's also understandable that <laughs> there's not that much coverage. And, you know, part of the difficulty is even when they did do things that very often wouldn't get, you know, the type of coverage that maybe it would have in the 30s or 40s when labor was seen sort of broadly in society to be an important political actor. And insofar as that's not the perception t- today, whether it's taboo or just ignored, is, yeah, maybe it's hard to say. Um and I, th- I think we'll have to see now with, um, like, for instance, it's a really big deal, the sickouts that ended the federal government shutdown, right, and the threat of a strike. It briefly got mentioned in the mainstream media, you know, that this played a role. But that's a huge story. It really should have been the big story. Workers ended the federal government shutdown through sickouts uh, in a way that, you know, Pelosi wasn't able to do through every single one of her bizarre, you know, proposals. And so... That, for instance, could have been and should have been a, a major story, and it just wasn't really covered. It, it barely made it into it. So even when there's something extremely exciting and epic, uh, there's a lag with, you know, what the media is reporting. 
how much of that? Uh, and we're, I mean, yeah, I'm conscious we're running out of time, but I'm, how much? How much of that do you think is a reflection of the fact that, thanks to journalism getting all like highfalutin professional in this in like the late fifties, sixties, it would it became um, became a result of it going from a blue collar to a white collar gig where you started getting the much more establishment figures who came in and they were because they were now earning um as much or beyond what the uh with all like political and like you know the the high the status elites they began identifying with them a hell of a lot more than with you know just regular like gumshoe reporters or something well, that's a good question i don't really know I, I i don't know that history very well um my impression though is that um the the real dramatic stop in labor reporting is more recent than that. That you know in the sixties or seventies you still had the New York Times had reporters, and so the politics of it I think were pretty institutional and reflected probably the type of consensus amongst union leaders and the Democratic Party. But at least it was there. You know there was it was it was being discussed in a way that, to be honest, for the last few decades it's barely even being discussed. Yeah, All right, and um, I guess to Unless there's any other like uh, like burning questions or anything, um, try to do a thing where at least the closest thing to a regular segment we have on every show is recommendations and endorsements. Uh, what have you been digging on lately that you'd like others to uh, to uh, others to find out about? Do you have anything anything that you've anything you've been enjoying, Candy? Or and this one just could be completely personal. It doesn't necessarily have to do with labor strikes. Yeah. Okay. This is like this. Yeah, this is from Pop Call. I mean, at one point, one of my co-hosts, uh, his recommendation was for a line of guitars that he had been playing. So it's kind of a thing of anything uh, cultural or not. Or yeah, well, if I'm being uh, very honest, that my 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 cultural uh, taste has plummeted in the in recent years, partly because of exhaustion. And so I find that now I, for instance, watch television shows that just uh, can uh, distract me enough to fall asleep to mm-hmm. so over the, over the last maybe year and a half maybe a little bit more i've become a real aficionado of just you know not terrible sitcoms but like fine sitcoms uh, that are neither embarrassingly funny that i watch them and that are, are not very amazing so there's a show like uh superstore for instance which is oh actually, like about walmart yeah, it's, it's like actually walmart pretty standard. it's actually pretty good Star- it, starring mark mckinney from kids in the hall i believe yeah and so it's actually pretty good i would i would I'm not sure that's true. I, I don't know who that is, but it, um, I think he's like one. He's like one of the tall, older white bosses. Yes, you're right. Oh, the, he is. Oh, you're right. He was on. He was on SNL for a year or two, but he was his kids in the hall. The show's actually pretty funny, and 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 I like it. Just it's uh, because I I like something uh, semi escapist. Like I can't watch Game of Thrones, uh, not just because it's uh, whatever it's too long, but I I can't really handle violent shows before going to bed because then I can't sleep as well. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as so I was watching Superstore, and before that, I watched Gilmore Girls, uh, which I'm a big fan of, and I, I highly recommend to people. New or old? We'll start from the beginning. Okay. And then, you know, there's the, the, the new is not long enough to really uh, sink wow. your teeth into. So th- these are, I, if anyone, everyone look me up and you, I can give you a whole line of, <laughs> uh, of other shows along this line. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm taken aback by the Gilmore Girls. Oh, really? I yeah. love Gilmore Girls. You love Gilmore Girls? Yeah, it's, um, it's pure happiness. I like need pure is, happiness. Yeah, the world no. is the world is a stressful place, and so if I'm gonna look for entertainment, it's, it's pure happiness. It's it's literally how I imagine rich people's lives. Like those are the like the biggest conflict you have, or you know, 
is like, oh, I'm in love with him, but he's in love, you know, that type of thing. And then, you know, will they, am I going to get into Harvard? Like, that's a big thing for a lot of seasons. It's like, she's trying so hard to get into Harvard. And I think she gets into Yale. Yeah. I kind of stop watching. I'm so, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. Good food, good company. Now, let's move on to good conversation. Rory, what is new in your life? Well, funny you should mention it. Now? Why not? Okay. Mom, Dad, we have some really big news. I got my college acceptance letters back. Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. And after giving it a lot of thought, I have decided I'm going to Yale. <laughs> Did you hear that? Yale! I'm going to Yale. That's where you went, Dad. You liked it, remember? Pass the Johnny Machete, please. Pass the... I don't understand. I thought you wanted me to go to Yale. No, we didn't. Absolutely not. What gave you that idea? Mom, Dad, look, I know we've had our differences over where Rory should go to school, but that's behind us now. She's going to Yale, and that's good. Really good. Nothing but smiles. We're, we're both very happy about it. Both. Her and me. She and I. Everybody in this room named Lorelai is over the moon about the going to Yale. Which means that everybody else in this room not named Lorelai can be equally over the moon about the going to Yale. I'm getting the champagne. I'm calling the Talbot. Oh, make sure and gloat over that dim-witted son of theirs who couldn't even get into brown. Yeah, this is, this is important. Uh, it's it's, it's <laughs> important. The, the, level, the level of drama is perfect if you want to de-stress it's the equivalent right. of drinking like, like a glass getting over of red a surgery wine. <laughs> yeah it's like the equivalent <laughs> of a glass drug. well but that's i think that's i think that's great if my, if my life in high school i wanted like uh, art to shock and you know be very visceral and i was in a punk band and now it's the exact opposite i listen to like soothing uh folk music and uh watch semi ridiculously uh banal you know romantic comedies and tv shows so that's my that's my cultural taste. Candy. That's interesting. I just want to con- I, I just want to talk about the Gilmore Girls some more. I think yeah. that's interesting socialist commentary. <laughs> it's like goes back to the seminal question about whether or not entertainment should be reflective of real life or should it be purely escapist. And yeah. I feel like perhaps in capital society it needs to be escapist because our day to day lives are so awful. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry. I just again I haven't heard Gilmore Girls in a long time. So All right. Yeah. I, yeah. It was. Uh, I think the the original show ran when I. D- it was what early aughts when it really first showed up, wasn't it? Yeah, it's like there, there, there was back during the years when I was still in Ann Arbor, but I didn't have cable. <laughs> but oh, and the thing I will recommend it real quick is a new Netflix sketch. I guess you could kind of call it sketch comedy. It's called "I Think You Should Leave," done by it's done by a lot of people who did the Detroiter show, which is Tim Richardson and a bunch of others. It is. Uh, kind of made by the the Lonely Island guys, mm-hmm. and who and all of them are all like ex SNL. It's pretty much an entire sketch show put uh, made of the sketches that they refused to let these guys run on SNL proper because they're they're very much the uh, they're very much like the the ten to one, the five to one, the very, like you know the last sketch of the night where they kind of like let the writers go nuts and just put some weird shit on there. Are they ticklish? Are they jigglish? Can they be tricked? Can they be chucked? Which ones will move? Which ones will talk? But more important, which ones can dance? Oh, who will be baby of the year? Thank you. Uh, Welcome back. 
It's been a grueling three months, but we've narrowed it down to three chubby little babies. From Salisbury, North Carolina, Michael Patrick Porkins. From Laverne, North Dakota, little Taffy Lee Fubbins. And the bad boy of the competition, Bart Harley Jarvis. Judges, do you need any more information to help you with your decision? I have firmly made up my mind. I would like more information. I'm a wreck right now. I understand. This is a hard decision. Let's hear once again from the baby's pediatrician. <clears throat> baby Porkins is 99th percentile in weight and 10th percentile in height. We got a certified chode on our hands. A little tuna can. Baby Fubbins is also 90th percentile in weight. Ooh, another chode. Mr. Jarvis is one of the most aggressive babies I've ever met. He has a massive underbite and completely flat back of the head. I hope you fucking die, Harley Jarvis. Get him out of here. No, I'm honestly done. I, I don't want to read anymore. Yeah, don't let it ruin your day, okay? Um, it's an entire... It's like... It, each episode is like... 17 in the 19 minutes there's maybe like five or six of them and it is some of the funniest shit you, that i've seen in a long time so yeah check out i think you should leave um also i think more than a little bit it was shot in detroit so that was a nice touch or at least yeah maybe it was i don't know all right well um wrapping things up how um uh eric how can folks uh see uh, see uh let folks know about the book and uh is it's is it actually out yet or yeah it's out the easiest way to probably buy it is online if you just google it there's a million different places you can buy it uh including some that are union places and some that are not like amazon right uh so you can choose your poison but yeah i'm gonna be on book tour for the next like three months so hit me up uh if you want me to come to your union or your dsa chapter i'm very excited about meeting new comrades and you know spreading the gospel of class struggle to as many people as possible excellent how can folks get a hold of you uh best way is probably maybe over twitter is my underscore eric blanc uh, is my handle or uh i've got a website and there's a contact email on there you can hit me up yeah sweet and do you want anybody to get a hold of you or? Absolutely not. No. Okay. So yeah, don't call, don't contact her. And as always, if you want to get a hold of us here at the show, uh, tell your friends. We do have a Patreon as, cause we're left this podcast with cats in the backgrounds. We have to have a, 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 a Patreon. You can help us support us for as little as a dollar a week for, I think it's like $3 a week. This is when you actually get, I should say, not a dollar a month for $3 a month. You can get uh, access to early episodes, um, bonus content and cat pictures. So. And you can reach that at patreon.com slash giving the mic. Uh, email us with your questions or comments or recommendations for good Korean restaurants to eat at in Portland at giving the mic dot, uh, at gmail.com. Twitter at giving the mic. Facebook.com slash giving the mic. Uh, like, you know, like, subscribe and share. Everybody give us a good review on, um, on, um, iTunes if possible. I can't think of anything else, to, anything else to push. So, um, yeah. Um, I don't think we have any other shout outs to give. So that's about it. All right. Final words from, uh, from all y'all. Anything, any, uh, any things you want, want, uh, folks to go out on? Thank you for having 
Me? I went to a waterfall today and ate a lot of ice cream, so I'm in a good mood. Which waterfall did you go to? I went to the Columbia Gorge. Excellent. Nice. Um, oh, that's a good... It is, it is, it, we are finally in decent weather in Portland after the rains and the colds and before the wood fires, so it's, uh, it's a nice time. I'm into it. Um, I just want to say, I'll say, I'll end it the same way that I did at the last podcast on teacher strikes, which is fuck charter schools. There we go. Yeah. Hey, yours was better than mine. <laughs> That's what happens. Anyway, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. And yeah, we're out. There's a flame, a flame, a big flame in my heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And believe me. Wait till the spam caller is none calling the landline. I think uh, it's great. You have a landline. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's vintage. Uh, well, yeah. Never actually use it. Never. Uh, I don't think we, I don't think I even know the number. And it's, 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 it's pretty much, it really sits there. It's kind of a thing. It's, it's pretty much, it, it's an emergency line out. And uh, that's, I don't even think we can do long distance on it, but. Okay. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, what can I say? We, uh, we appreciate the, uh, the retro technologies here. Anyway. <laughs>